finally to the end of Luke chapter 9 here as we look at these last few verses. Good text for the new year. This call to discipleship. In some ways, this is a really simple text. It kind of preaches itself a little bit. In other ways, this is a really, really difficult text. Um, It's a hard one to listen to and to grasp exactly. There's two little words that really wrap up the entire force, the entire thought of what is taking place here in in these episodes. Jesus mentions them as an imperative just one time in in verse 59. Those two words are, follow me. Really, the whole episode then revolves around the call of discipleship, the call of every Christian, the call to follow Christ, what that means and what that is going to cost. Both of those words are important there, follow and me. I think for us, it's important for us to wrestle with just for a moment what it means to follow Christ within the context or a bit of a disadvantage. And when you think in the original context here a couple thousand years ago, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he's standing in front of them. He's getting ready to walk down the road. He says, follow me. And there's, you know, the immediate application. Obviously, it means more than just walking behind him, but a big part of it is follow Jesus. He's there, you follow him. So for us, when we think about following Jesus, sometimes it can be just a a little bit removed from what exactly does that mean? What what is that going to look like to follow Jesus? Yet in other ways, we have quite an advantage over the disciples as he would stand there, not yet obviously reaching Jerusalem and the passion and and the cross. And and they are still foggy, still do not understand what exactly this kingdom that he is proclaiming is all about. What exactly his redemptive mission is going to be all about. And so when he says to them, follow me, there's a lot of unknown. They're they're uncertain. What exactly is your mission? What is your plan? Where are you going? What's it going to look like for us to follow you? I think a way to help us understand the, the follow me is to look later on. Jesus in the end of Matthew, we, we find Jesus after his resurrection, shortly before his ascension, giving the great commission, giving that final call to his disciples. And he begins it with, go and make disciples of all the nations. He, he sends them out on mission, go, make disciples of all the, all the nations. We know from reading through Acts and the rest of our New Testament that that is going to be no easy task. They're going to face incredible hardship. They're going to face persecution, resistance, rejection. A lot of them are going to die for the spreading of the gospel. So he gives them this commission to go, and it is a hard and it is a difficult path. But then later on in that same commission, he he refers to all, all authority has been given to him. And now we take this initial command and it starts to turn the focus back to Jesus. Where indeed all authority has been given to him to send them out and to make their mission successful. All authority has been given to him because he was the perfect son of God. Sent to earth, lived perfectly, all the way to the cross, died and then defeated the final enemy. Sin and death by rising on the third day. He's getting ready to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so he says, all authority is given to me. And then that final promise, do you remember that final promise? I will be with you forever. 
wherever you go, I will be with you. This commission, this call to discipleship, I think helps us to understand the idea of follow me. And follow, you have the go. You have the path set before you. You have the hard and difficult path of discipleship, of declaring the name of Jesus Christ in the midst of darkness. We've talked about this a lot of times. Just as Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, he did so in enemy territory. He did so in the domain of darkness. He did so in an age that was passing away. The kingdom of darkness firmly established. And he comes in invading the darkness with light. When he gives us the commission to go on mission to to make disciples, we are going into darkness. We are going into enemy territory. We are bringing the age to come and invading the age that is passing away. That is the building of the kingdom. So when he says follow, it is that kind of overwhelming task. But then we connect the me with it and we're brought back to the real treasure, to the one who is worthy to follow, the one who has gone before us, setting the path to Jerusalem, setting the path to the cross. And we have the promise that he is with us. He is sustaining us. He is giving us the grace and the strength to carry out this mission. So when he says, follow me, you need to hear two things. As if Jesus is saying, there is me and there is my mission. There is a person, Jesus, and there is a path. There is a sweetness in Jesus, and there is going to be suffering in the following. Or there is Jesus and there is Jerusalem, as we will see in this text. So when he says, me, follow me, It points to Jesus Christ. Follow a pathway of surrender, humility, self-denial. We have seen the life and ministry of Christ unfold to this point, haven't we? We have seen what that ministry looks like of Jesus Christ. He comes with power and authority and boldness, but his ministry is marked by humility. It's marked by lowliness. It's marked by rejection. It's marked by suffering. It's marked as one who is wondering. It's marked by self-denial, by putting others first, showing mercy when others are showing zero mercy towards him. It had a singular focus, a singular treasure, a singular direction. That is the proclamation and the demonstration of the kingdom of God, invading the darkness with that message. That is Jesus' life. And so now when he says, follow me, we begin to see what that's going to look like. It's going to be a life that is marked by humility. A life marked by self-denial. A life marked by kingdom proclamation. Pointing people to Jesus Christ. And doing it in the midst, as we said, in enemy territory. Of kingdom demonstration. Not in the same way, in the same authority and power that Jesus does. But in the same way of living out the fruits of the Spirit. Kindness. Mercy towards the least. Love and concern and care towards the poor. Humility. So to follow Jesus is to be marked by all of these things that Jesus was marked by. We'll see in this context that it it comes at great cost. Following Jesus 
is not a life of comfort and ease. And if your discipleship is completely comfortable and totally at ease, then I think we're missing this real call and cost of discipleship. Another word I think that kind of helps us paints the picture before we get into these three, basically it's three little statements or, or, or three real short conversations with three obvious applications. And at the end, we'll just look at those three and let you make that application in your own heart and your own life. But before we get there, you see, when we get to this point in Luke, from Luke 9, really, sort of the end of Luke 9 towards Luke 19, Jesus is on the road. He's on the road to Jerusalem. That, That whole section is Jesus on the road. So just to review where we've come in Luke, in case you're new with us, kind of help the direction where we're going. Beginning of Luke, the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus Christ, and those early stories of Jesus' adolescence. And that's setting the stage for us of the Messiah, the King is being sent. The prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in John the Baptist as the herald, and now in Jesus Christ, the promised one. And then you come, move through that, and you move now to Jesus' preparation for ministry. Do you remember that part in chapter 3 and chapter 4? And Jesus' preparation for ministry is, one, he has given himself to the Word. He has grown in his understanding. He knows the Word. It is, secondly, his baptism. You see, the baptism, the presence of the Trinity there, and his baptism, baptism, commissioning him to go forward. And at that baptism, the Holy Spirit then empowers him in a unique way to carry out his mission and his ministry. You have his temptation experience that prepares him as he goes into the wilderness, as he is praying and seeking the Lord, another mark of his preparation, prayer, and he goes into the wilderness, and he has that temptation experience. And we see what that means. First, we see where the people of God failed in their wilderness temptation experience. Jesus did not fail, and he remained faithful. And in his obedience, he has set both an example, and he has become the Redeemer. And so you have this preparation of Jesus Christ for ministry, and then he he launches off into ministry. So about the middle of chapter 4 then, really all the way to where we are now, you have Jesus launching into his ministry, which is a proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God. It is a proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. He's invading the darkness with light. You see it in his healing, in his control of the weather and his control of the storm and his control over the demons, you see the kingdom authority and power over this age that is passing away. Mixed in with that is this then teaching of the disciples to begin to show them what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what Jesus Christ's mission is and what it is to follow Christ. And so we come all the way really to chapter 9, and a couple weeks ago, Pastor Adam was in this text in chapter 9, Verse 51, and there's kind of a dramatic turn here. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The literal reading of that, he says he stiffened face towards Jerusalem. You can kind of get a picture of that when someone, you know, sets their jaw, that determination 
that idea of they stiffen their face. They're, they're turning in determination, a person of, of focus and steel and direction. Nothing is going to stop me. And at that moment, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. And now all the way up to chapter 19, he is on his way to Jerusalem. Now we know this is more than just like, hey, he's headed to Jerusalem as kind of his final destination. Jerusalem means the gospel. Luke 18, verse 31 33, Jesus explains what Jerusalem means. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. You see, when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, it's towards the passion, it's towards those final climactic moments of the indescribable suffering and anguish and rejection all the way to the cross. As he would hang there on the cross, the full wrath of God towards your sin spilled out on him as he would hang there and he would become a curse. All the filth and all the sin ever committed by those who trust in him, placed upon him and him absorbing the wrath for that, all the way to the point that God the Father would turn his face away. This is what Jesus is setting his face toward with determination going after is these final climactic gospel moments. So when he says, follow me, he is saying, follow me to Jerusalem. This is the discipleship. Follow me to Jerusalem. The the mission of God to, to make disciples of the nations, to make much of Christ's name, it goes through Jerusalem. It goes through the cross. That's why he's told them earlier in chapter 9 to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. The call to follow me for them is very real. It is on the road to Jerusalem. They aren't quite as determined and focused and understanding as Jesus what's coming. He's trying to explain to them the incredible cost of following him. what we'll look at this morning here in just a moment to follow Christ, the incredible cost that is associated with that. How seriously are you taking your discipleship? And it really boils down to this. How important is Jesus? Is he your treasure? Is he what you're after? Is he what you're pursuing? The call to discipleship through Luke is is a hard call. Later in chapter 14, he'll talk uh, about the the call to discipleship. And there he talks about having to hate your father and your mother, of denying yourself, of taking up your cross. It's so countercultural to how the church thinks of discipleship. You think later on in uh, Luke, either 17 or 18 in that area, you have the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and wants to follow him. Here's a prestigious, wealthy, influential man. 
you know, if you're a pastor, it's the kind of person when they come in, you're rolling out the red carpet for them. Let's big deal this person, and you know, we really need to get them. And you see Jesus immediately goes after the one thing in his life that be holding him back and says, sell all that you have, give to the poor and follow me. The call to discipleship is so different in the gospel than how we make it today. We make it as simple and as dumbed down and as happy and skippy as we can. And the cost of discipleship is not explained that way in the scripture. Just one more comment before we get into these final verses and thoughts here. The tendency will be, there's a tendency and a challenge. The tendency is to hear what Jesus says and quickly reinterpret it into something much easier to hear. We want to take the edge off of it. We want to soften it. And even, I'm sure as I preach through it, I'll caveat them somewhat. And you can pray that I caveat them correctly. That I'm not taking the edge off of this call that Jesus makes. Because it's so against our culture today, this sort of call to discipleship and cost of discipleship. We're used to Jesus wants you to be happy and healthy, and if you follow him, you will be, and and the exact opposite is being said here. It's the tendency as the pastors, you don't want to like gloom and doom everybody on January 1st. And then here's the tendency, I think, for each of us. So this is what I've been praying for you, I've been praying for myself, is as we go through this, each of us are going to have things we need to look at in our life that's going to take some repentance and some refocus on Jesus Christ and our discipleship. But the hard thing is, there's going to be one or two treasures or idols in your heart and your life that you're not wanting to give up. And I'm not talking about like blatant sin that we just need to give up. I'm talking about good gifts from the Lord that have grown to the place of an idol or a treasure that is distracting you from following Jesus. And I know how we operate. What we'll want to do is as we listen to this, we just won't think about that one area of our life. You know, you kind of set that. As long as we don't think about it, then the light of the word can't shine on it and can't reveal to us that we've made it an idol. So my prayer for you, my challenge to you and to me this morning is as Jesus walks through these three short little conversations, as Luke walks through these three short conversations, that, that, that treasure, that idol, the thing that you know you love and you don't really want to mess with it, that you'll open that up to be exposed to the gospel so that indeed Jesus Christ will be our priority. All right. <clears throat> Luke 9, 57 to 62. What Jesus is doing, what Luke is doing here is he's, he's placing these three episodes together to really show us the cost, what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. You, if you go to Matthew chapter 8, there's also this same, uh, these same episodes are, are laid out. Matthew tends to do it a bit more historically, chronologically, where Luke seems to gather things up for his teaching purposes. So in Matthew 8, you have these first two conversations taking place. <clears throat> and they take place probably simultaneously, in the same 
at the same time span, the same event, these first two conversations taking place. Matthew doesn't record the third one, which means it still happened, but it probably happened a little later on, a different time and place. But Luke puts them together to teach us about discipleship. What Jesus is doing in this is really he's doing two things. He's teaching and he's testing. He is teaching us the cost of what it means to be a disciple. And he's testing in that he's getting to the very heart of the issue. He's looking at the person in front of him and he knows their heart. He knows their idol. And he is going straight for that idol that competes with Jesus Christ for the true priority, for the treasure that Jesus should be. So what he's doing is he's not making new commands for being a disciple. That is to say, when we go through this, it's not if you have any part in your parents' funeral, then you're not a disciple of Jesus. He's not giving you a bunch of denials of don't talk to your family, don't have a nice house, and don't uh, bury the dead. He's not coming with new commands. He's teaching the force of what it means to be a disciple, and then he's testing us to see what is that idol in our life, that thing that we are still holding on to so deeply. All right. So number one, first test we see here is that following, we need to follow Christ at the expense of convenience and comfort. Following Christ at the expense of convenience and comfort. So you have this first disciple, he's all gung-ho. He comes up to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm sure he was genuine in the moment. He's excited. He comes to Jesus and he says it. And Jesus immediately just throws water on the fire, doesn't he? He says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now we know, we look at the life of Jesus and, and we know that you know, he grew up, he had a home where he could sleep. As he grew older, he had friends, he had people who took him in. You'll, you'll see all through Luke that people take him in. He has a place to lay down. So it's not saying like every night he's sleeping out under the stars. Although that happened, he slept in a boat, he slept outside at times. What he's saying is the comforts, the conveniences of this life are gone as a disciple of Christ. It's not a life of comfort it's not a life that pursues ease. There is sacrifice that is going to have to be made. He's not storing up treasure in, in this earth. He is a wanderer. He is about the mission of a heavenly kingdom. And as he comes to the age that is passing away, he's not putting down roots and building up a kingdom of comfort and ease here. And so he immediately goes after comfort and ease. He looks at this person and he sees, yes, they're genuine somewhat, but they haven't counted the cost of what it means to follow him on the road to Jerusalem through the cross. Are you willing to inconvenience yourself? Are you willing to give up comfort and ease? You see in other portions of scripture. Here's what it means. I'll provide a few applications. You fill in where it hits you. It means, are you willing to give of your wealth until it hurts? 
it's a bit uncomfortable. It's not a life of ease. It's not, we set it up so once we have everything that we need, plus everything that we want, plus all the money in the 401k, plus the college fund, plus the vacation fund, plus the blah, 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 blah. If there's anything left over, then I can give a little bit to the Lord. Is it a priority? Is there any sort of sacrifice in you giving to the Lord, in you giving to your local church as part of your worship, in you seeing and being moved and caring for the needy and the poor, to invest in missions, the gospel going to the nations on on a personal level? And it doesn't matter if $5 is a sacrifice of wealth for you or $50,000 is a sacrifice of wealth for you. Are you moving beyond ease and comfort? It means that some of your hobbies, sports, travel, whatever it might be, need to be pulled out and evaluated in light of the call to follow Jesus. What takes priority is that I follow Christ well, after I follow the Steelers or the Ravens, since Chris is here. After I follow the Steelers, I guess you don't have to follow the Ravens much longer, right? One more week. <laughs> <laughs> or I have, you know, my, all my weekends blocked out for vacations. I have whatever it might be. And we think, no, I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm willing to follow him. <clears throat> but I'm not going to, like, inconvenience myself, change my schedule. You're not going to look at my checkbook or my calendar and see that I follow Christ. But, you know, I love him. And Jesus is saying, don't just so flippantly say, I'll follow you wherever you go. And make him your number four priority then. There is a cost of ease and a cost of comfort. Jesus Christ experienced it his whole life. He tells you to be a disciple is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. This isn't an ease of life and comfort when you put someone else's needs before your own. That's what we're told to do. When you use resources, when you use time, when you use thoughtfulness and energy for someone else besides yourself, that's what it is to follow me, to follow Christ. I think sometimes we, I do this, I think we all do it, is we, we take stewardship and we kind of twist it as a way to get out of, of really investing in the work of the kingdom. We take like Proverbs, like go to the ant thou sluggard. And that becomes our one verse, a work that, yes, hard work and and not being stupid with your resources. And it excuses you from all investment in others. And until my 401k reaches a million, I'm not giving to... I just encourage you, open up those things that you really treasure in your heart and your life and say, is Jesus the king of those areas? Is he your treasure above those things. And again, there isn't a call or command that you can't take a vacation or you can't have a 401k or whatever it might be. 
But before you quickly reinterpret and take the edge off of this command, let it hit you. See what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Number two, it is following Christ at the expense of what we hold dear. Look at verse 59. In this second conversation, Jesus kind of instigates it. He, He says to another man, follow me. He responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, he says the first person who comes to Jesus is a scribe. The second person who comes is a disciple. Luke weaves it a little more general. And I think he does it so we can just easily place ourselves in that conversation. So this person comes to Jesus or Jesus comes to this person, calls him to follow him, and the guy responds with what seems like the most reasonable request possible. I think these are some of the hardest words of Jesus to, to hear and feel good about. No, let the dead bury their own dead. Come and follow him. And it feels so insensitive and rude, in a sense. I think a couple things help us understand this. Most likely, <clears throat> this guy wasn't like you know, he was at the funeral, he left to visit Jesus, and now he's going back to the funeral. More than likely, his father is elderly, near death. And so he's saying, let me spend these final days, weeks, months with my father, help make these preparations. And so it, it could be, it's, it's probably a longer time frame than just like two hours at the cemetery. <clears throat> the Jewish tradition of the funerals at this time was much more lengthy, sometimes almost the to a year on the one-year anniversary, they moved the bones to a special gravesite. You see some of that in the Old Testament scripture. <clears throat> and so there's probably more involved here than just visiting the cemetery. But whether it is or isn't, what Jesus is getting at is not, hey, don't care about your parents and their funeral. Obviously, all throughout scripture, we have commands to honor, to respect, and a, a loving family, and a call to care for one another in the family, and all of that. But he's going right at the, I know what you treasure more than me. Your family, your relationships. I think this one is hard because it's, it's the, really the most special, most beautiful of gifts that Jesus gives his people is family and marriage and these close relationships. And now Jesus is going at it and saying, I should be so worthy to you, such a great treasure that you don't even think for a minute of being distracted by family for your pursuing obedience to Jesus Christ. I'll make one final caveat so you know what I'm not saying, and then I'll just go for it. Listen, you need to love your family and spend time with them. I'm not telling you that they are. Jesus isn't saying, who cares about all relationships? But he's going at what you hold most dear that trumps your obedience to the Lord. You put it in context of, okay, how are different ways we might struggle with that? You know, family time can become an idol that steals from your discipleship and commitment to the Lord. If family time 
Yes, it's important, but it's not the most important thing in your life. Family time cannot become that idol, that treasure that comes before following the Lord. Saving all you have to make sure your kids can go to any college and have a good inheritance, that's not what you're called to do. Yes, care for your children, but is Jesus your treasure? It's hard to hear because... We don't like what he's actually saying. <laughs> Let the dead bury their own dead. Be about the work of the kingdom. I think for others of us, it, it can become a different, a different challenge. If a spouse, husband, or wife, one way or the other, is, whether they're an unbeliever or they are just not pursuing the Lord and taking serious his commitment to discipleship, do you then just forsake Christ and you're called to discipleship? in order to honor that person over the Lord? They're difficult questions, things we have to think through, but we can't guard it as, well, this is my untouchable area, is family time. As soon as I get enough family time and have enough of that, then Jesus will be a priority to me. Then taking up my cross, denying myself, helping someone else outside of my family might be a priority. But... And Jesus goes at the heart of the issue here. <clears throat> In verse 60, where it says, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He's, the word there is just a common word for dead that is used. But it's used interchangeably by Luke and really in all the Gospels. And it is lifeless, whether it is spiritual lifelessness or physical lifelessness. And oftentimes they just kind of leave it ambiguous that they both ring true. And most commentators say it, I agree, it seems to be that it's a bit of play on words here, is the spiritually dead, those who don't treasure Christ, those who are about this age that is passing away, let them be about taking care of themselves. You go proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't invest so much in the age that's passing away. It's asking, what is your highest commitment? Do you let even the most precious of gifts distract you from following Jesus? This is a, a difficult one. I get it. But where does Jesus rank in your priorities? You know, what are the big ones that steal, whether it's, it's career or family or security, financial security, those things that can become the priorities that we feel we can justify as able to trump the cost of discipleship. Jesus says, goes after what you is most precious to you. Is it more precious than Jesus to you? Finally, his last comment here. Nah, I got a little lazy on this one. It's just following Christ at the expense of everything else. Or following Christ wholeheartedly. Maybe an easier, better way to say it. <clears throat> Verse 61. Then another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So he says, Lord, I want to follow you, and then he gives a condition to his following. Again, 
it seems like a reasonable request. Go say goodbye. So the lesson is at the end, don't say bye to your family. The lesson is don't give conditions to God for your discipleship. And you see Jesus' response to him kind of shows what is in his heart. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It seems to be more that going to see his family is a bit more of giving it a delay, of maybe kind of getting a feel from them. What do they think about his, his decision to follow the Lord? It's a, a divided heart. It is a distraction. We were just up at my in-laws this past week, uh, having a late Christmas, and um, my father-in-law is a farmer. They grow peppers, and it's just acres and acres of peppers. And they have those big tractors where, you know, no longer the mule pulling the single plow, but those big tractors got the head that make, like, I don't know, 12 rows at a time. So when you're walking along through a path along the farm, you look down, and just for hundreds of yards, you see these rows of very straight rows of peppers and crops, whatever they have growing at the time. And they do it when they get in that tractor and they're sitting up real high. They pick something and they go to it. And then they turn and they pick something and they go straight back to it. If he was driving the tractor, looking back, seeing what a good job he's doing, you can imagine how that those lines would get. Maybe for you it's mowing the grass. I don't know if anyone else takes pride in having straight lines in the grass. I kind of take pride in that. Kind of nice straight lines. <clears throat> my dad had a mowing business when I was younger. We had several yards of mowed. My dad sometimes would help if things got real busy. He would do this real annoying thing where we'd be mowing the grass. We'd be all done. He's like, at this end, here's the truck. He had like all the nice straight lines. And he'd just start pushing that mower right through the middle of the yard, all the way back. So then you have one like wiggly line the opposite way. So we'd actually pick up the mower and walk it across. Keep your nice straight lines. He's saying this distracted discipleship where other things are taking your attention, other things are, are pulling at your affections, and you're always turning around looking, and I'm being pulled by this treasure, by this idol. Says, no, you've got to keep your eyes ahead of you. Keep going after what is important. Again, I think that the lesson is is clear for all of us. What what is it that is dividing your heart? What are those things that quickly steal you from following Jesus Christ? He's on the road to Jerusalem here. He's calling people to follow him. As we walk through Luke, try to keep it in mind. I know it'll be a long time before we get to Luke 19, but try to keep it in mind as we go through it of kind of the growing intensity and momentum with each step getting closer to Jerusalem. You know when you have those big events in your life. When I was eight or nine years old, our family moved to New Zealand as missionaries for a time. So I remember it was a big deal when we told the church that my dad was at that we were were going. But we had like a year of time to raise financial support and do all that. But as the time got closer, when it was like the last couple weeks, I mean, I was only eight or nine, so... You know, you don't really care about too many things. But even I could kind of feel the intensity of it's getting closer, it's getting closer the night before. I mean, we, all our stuff had shipped. We were going. We didn't know when we'd be back, what was going to happen. You're going to the airport. And, I mean, every decision, everything, just the intensity of the moment grows and grows and grows. 
<clears throat> when we got to New Zealand, there was friendly people greeting us. We weren't going to New Zealand to experience incredible suffering and persecution and death. So imagine Christ now on this road to Jerusalem and the intensity and why he gets so serious with this call to discipleship is you're taking it so flippantly. Look at his disciples. You, the cost is so much higher. Don't, don't just come to me with some feeling of, hey, I'll do this, but let me do these other things first. No, do you realize how high the stakes are? You realize the call is to take up your cross and follow me. To make Jesus Christ your real treasure is going to cause inconvenience and discomfort financially, time-wise, the way you organize your life. He looks at them and says, is it doing any of that for you? The call is still the same for us. Being a disciple of Christ, it is both sweetness and suffering. It is both joy and it is hardship. It is denying self, putting others' interests first, taking up your cross, realizing that rejection is going to be part of your path. And following Christ, because in the end, he is so worth it. The treasure is so beautiful and so worth it. Lord, as we begin a new year, we thank you for passages like this that shake our heart and our mind, bring our focus back to you. Lord, some of these are hard to hear, but I pray that you'll help us to hear them right, that we won't reinterpret it so quickly that, Lord, we reinvent what the call to discipleship is. And so as we come to worship and we stand and raise our hands in praise of Jesus. It's really nothing more than just raising our hands in praise to a God we invented. Lord, we let the force of this land on us. <clears throat> Lord, each of us have areas of our hearts and our minds where we need to uh, confess and repent of uh, competing idols, competing treasures that would pull our mind and our affections away from Jesus Christ. Help us to know what it looks like to follow you. Lord, there's just so many clear passages of loving and, and one another, of forgiving one another, of humility, of putting others' needs first. Lord, just those following you in those ways is a huge shift in mindset for many of us. Might we be faithful with the resources you give us to seek first the kingdom of God. Actually, just a moment longer, you sit there with your heads bowed, eyes closed, continue to respond to the word preached this morning in just a moment. Worship team will lead us in a corporate response.